Atsumarie, welcome to First Up, it's Ratu, Tuesday the 28th of June, Kona Trubridge Aho. Coming up, Russia hits a crowded shopping mall in Ukraine, we'll have more on this soon. Nationals Deputy Nicola Willis is live with us this morning, we'll be asking her about her leader's anti-abortion views. Rugby reporter Joe Porter previews the All Blacks COVID-affected clash with Ireland. And a Māori baker is being recognised by UNESCO for his delicious rewina bread, with a recipe passed down over more than a century. As soon as I heard that George was selling the winner, I raced down there with my father and we got a loaf each, but I ate almost the entire loaf in one sitting, so I've never bought enough. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nick Trubridge. We're going to begin this morning in Ukraine where President Zelensky uh, says a shopping centre in the east of the country has been hit by a number of Russian missiles. The strike, uh, which happened about three hours ago, has killed at least two people and injured around 20. More than 1,000 people were inside the complex when the missiles hit. Here's the BBC's Nick Beek with more. A large part of this shopping centre engulfed with flames, lots of smoke and also some video of people purportedly trapped inside is now emerging. We do have an update from the deputy head of the Ukrainian presidential office saying that at least two people have have been killed, 20 people are wounded, nine of those are seriously wounded. But the fear is, and sadly the expectation is, that the number of casualties could rise in the coming hours. President Zelensky, as you said, has described this as a a despicable act. Clearly, in his mind and everyone else's, this was not a military target. This was a shopping centre. President Zelensky saying at the time of the strike, the estimate is that about a 1,000 people were inside. And I think that reflects the level of concern Ukrainian authorities have at this point, that the number of people who've been killed and injured could rise quite significantly. We've heard from the authorities there saying that a number of emergency services, as you'd you'd imagine, are there now uh, doing their bit. Certainly, the, the, the images we saw, the, the ferocity of the flames would make any sort of rescue, opportun- you know, rescue scenario at this point extremely difficult. But clearly, a full emergency is underway there. I can tell you what the governor of Poltava has said. This is the region where the city is located. He said this is a war crime, another Russian war crime, a crime against humanity, an open and cynical act of terror against the civilian population and then goes on to talk about doctors, rescuers, police officers all doing their bit. I should tell you that Kremenchuk is a city in the middle of Ukraine where they have had missile strikes before. At the end of April there was an attack and about 10 days ago an oil refinery was hit. So certainly it's been in the sights of the the Russians for a while but nothing on the scale of what we've seen today. And this of course, worth stressing, this is a civilian target. A shopping centre has President Zelensky says possibly a thousand people inside at the time of impact. Right to the UK now, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson has skipped the country to attend the G7 conference uh, in Germany. For more on this and for other news out of Britain, I'm joined by our correspondent, uh, Hope Bolger. Morning, Hope. Good morning, Nick. Hey, look, uh, so let's start with the G7. I guess the biggest item on the agenda there is going to be, um, well, surprise, surprise, the, the war in Ukraine. Uh, would I be right about that? What's going on there? Yes, completely right. As we'd all expect, Ukraine is definitely top of the agenda today. Uh, seven of the most powerful leaders in the world are meeting in Bavaria. And this morning on day two, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, joined for talks via video link. 
The other leaders promised him they will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes, they said. Speaking ahead of that meeting, the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson pledged his long-term commitment to supporting Ukraine. He said no one at the G7 can see any alternative. Now, of course, this has big financial implications for UK taxpayers, especially with the background of the rising cost of living here in the UK. And Mr Johnson said he understood those concerns, but sometimes the price of freedom is worth paying. And later um, in those meetings, he also quipped with fellow leaders, show them our pecs, he said. The Prime Minister was clearly mocking Russia's Vladimir Putin, who is famously fond of bareback horse riding for the cameras. Um, if you haven't seen those pictures, it might be worth taking a look. Yeah, we've all, uh, well, I've seen the photos. Yeah, if you haven't, go and have a look at them. They're uh... Yeah, they're interesting. Uh, look, um, it's not just Russia and the Ukraine on the agenda. Uh, I'm seeing here countering China's Belt and Road Initiative in developing nations. That's also on the agenda. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, leaders have set out plans to mobilise hundreds of billions of dollars of investment for the developing world. G7 leaders will raise $600 billion over five years to fund the launch of infrastructure projects in middle and low income countries. The Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, or PGII, will be geared towards tackling climate change, improving global health and achieving gender equality, amongst other things. Uh, President Biden said it's an investment that will deliver returns for everyone. Now, as you said, the plan is being seen as a rival to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which provides money for emerging countries to build ports, roads and bridges. The BRI has been criticised as a way of providing predatory loans, though. Um, It said it will force... um, debt-saddled countries to give over key assets if they fail to meet their repayments. So it's hoped that this scheme from the G7 will show countries in the developing world that they have a choice. Uh, changing tack slightly, uh, Prince Charles is under the microscope, isn't he? Accepting uh, gifts of suitcases full of cash from the Prime Minister of Qatar. Um, tell us about that. What is going on there? Is he in a little bit of strife here, potentially? Well, I mean, the UK um, Charity Commission is examining whether it needs to launch an investigation. So it hasn't launched an investigation. It's looking at whether it needs to into these donations. Um, by a former Prime Minister of Qatar to Prince Charles's charity, the Prince of Wales Charitable Fund. Um, and this all comes after a UK newspaper claimed over two and a half million pounds were donated over four years from 2011. The first, as you said, being handed over in a suitcase. Um, some of the money is reportedly also given in the upmarket shop Fortnum and Mason. Now, there aren't any suggestions of wrongdoing. Regulations allow for donations to be made in cash, but charities do have to carry out due diligence. Um, and Prince Charles's representatives say all the correct processes have been followed. So I have to wait and see about whether an investigation does get launched into that. Mm, when are we going to find out? Uh, I mean, I guess it's the fact that it. It's been handed over in a suitcase, isn't it? That that seems a little strange. Yeah, it does. And it got described as grubby and scuzzy by a former MP right. here. And I, that's how people are seeing it. It's like, mm, you know, some eyebrows are being raised about that. And I guess that's what the Charity Commission will be looking into. Yeah, all right. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Hey, thanks very much, Hope. That's uh, Hope Bolger uh, coming into us from London there. Uh, we're going to stay in the UK. We're a growing number of Ukrainian refugees Uh, in the UK are finding themselves without a place to live, without a home. Their stories expose uh, a lack of contingency within schemes introduced by the country's government to provide safe homes for those fleeing the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, Here's CNN's Claire Sebastian. 
A new phrase somehow fitting for Natalia Lamar. At the age of 49, she's starting again from scratch, including a whole new language. Just four months ago, she was running her own hairdressing business and putting the finishing touches on her dream house in what was then the affluent Kiev suburb of Bucha. She watched from her second-floor window as the bombs started falling. A few days later, she says, the Russian soldiers came. I lay on the floor, on the tiled floor, and I was immediately freezing. And I heard them discussing, here's a basement, there's probably an entrance, and I heard the glass break. I started crying and saying, guys, don't kill me. On March 10th, she managed to leave with a neighbor driving through apocalyptic scenes. She made it to Germany and finally in early May to London under the British government's Homes for Ukraine scheme. The scheme will allow Ukrainians with no family ties to... The government pays a monthly allowance to hosts, but matching them with refugees is left to charities, individuals or even social media. In Natalia's case, a friend living in London found an older couple willing to host her. An arrangement, she says, lasted just two weeks ending over some minor disagreements. There was one trivial thing, and I didn't even know what they weren't happy with, then another. And even if they said something, it was done with such a smile that I thought everything was okay. It upset me so much that I felt that I was going through more stress right now when I understood I had to pack my bags than I did in my basement in Bucha. We couldn't reach Natalia's sponsors to comment for this story, but her friend who knows them confirmed she was asked to leave. Her situation is far from isolated. New data from the UK government shows 660 Ukrainian households sought homelessness assistance during the first three months of the war. That's both from the Homes for Ukraine scheme and another scheme that allows Ukrainians to stay with family members in the UK. And the reality it's probably worse than that. Almost a quarter of councils haven't provided any data at all, including here in Bexley, where Natalia first lived. The government denied several interview requests. It says more than 77,000 people have arrived from Ukraine since the war started, and the overwhelming majority are settling in well. When relationships do break down, a government spokesperson told us the local councils have a duty to ensure families and not left without a roof over their head. The whole scheme, in my opinion, has been very much shambolic from the very beginning. Greenwich Council in southeast London is dealing with 19 such cases. We will not turn anyone away. We're not that type of borough, but we do need support in all of this. We've experienced cuts since 2010, over 100 million in cuts to our borough. They're worried this is just the beginning. Hosts were asked to commit for a minimum of six months, so September could see a sudden surge in homelessness cases. On any exercise of this scale, there are going to be failures. Uh, there are going to be placements that don't work. And there isn't a coherent rematching scheme, which we would like to see. The government says councils do have access to a rematching system. The reality, though, is some refugees are ending up in temporary accommodation, or like Natalia Limar, outside the system. She is now staying with a new host found through a local WhatsApp group and is trying to build a future. A victim not just of war, but of the cracks appearing in the very systems designed to help those who escaped.
It is coming up 17 minutes past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nick Trubridge, in for Nathan Rady. Uh, we're keen for your feedback. Uh, a little bit earlier we heard about Prince Charles receiving uh, gifts, his charity receiving gifts from the Prime Minister of Qatar, looking at whether they need to launch an investigation into that. So I want to know, what's the dodgiest thing you've received in a suitcase? Uh, on a more serious note, we're getting Nicola Willis on later. Should we know exactly where current MPs stand on abortion? Because that's what we're going to be talking with her about. Uh, you can text us on 2101. You can tweet us at firstuprnz or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram at firstuprnz. All right, to Victoria now, where debate rages over wage increases. The state's wage watchdog is pursuing employees, employers rather, for failing to pay entitlements on time. The wage inspectorate has filed charges against labour hire company All Staff Australia. The inspectorate will allege the company failed to pay five former casual staff tens of thousands of dollars for long service leave. Unions hope the charges send a message to employers that if they don't pay entitlements on time, they could face fines. The ABC's Oliver Gordon reports. A new watchdog was set up a year ago with the power to investigate wage theft and prosecute offenders. Since then, it claims it's clawed back more than $1 million in unpaid long service leave, and Commissioner Robert Hortle says that work's continuing. So we've recently put a matter into court, which I won't go into too much depth on given that it is before the courts, but we've put a matter before the courts where business has failed to pay allegedly casuals their long service leave entitlements. The inspectorate is alleging All Staff Australia failed to pay five former employees more than $32,000 in long service leave entitlements when their employment ended, despite them completing at least seven years service. All Staff Australia spokesman Nick Allen claims the concerned parties were paid back. Look, this matter was paid. It was paid in December of last year. And that's after discussions with the department. And as far as we know, the matter was dealt with. Now, we, we are aware and have been notified that there is a court case which is set down for the 15th of August and um, we wouldn't want to prejudice any potential outcomes of that court case. Under Victoria's wage theft laws, even if employers eventually pay back unpaid benefits, they may need to pay thousands in penalties for each day that leave wasn't paid. The ABC understands this matter will focus on that period, during which entitlements were owed but allegedly not paid. Commissioner Robert Hortle says employees in Victoria have a responsibility not just to ensure they eventually pay long service leave, but that they pay it on time. He warns the penalties for missing those deadlines can be substantial. Employers who withhold long service leaves shouldn't think that they'll just have to pay the outstanding amount if if they get caught and everything will be okay. There, There are criminal penalties for breaking the law and, and the wage inspector doesn't hesitate to take legal action where that's appropriate and the penalties can be significant. So it's a continuing offence under the law. That means for each day which the offence continues, people can be fined over $2,000 for individuals and, and body corporates more than $10,000 per day. Will Strzok is the acting secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council. It's not enough for an employer just to say, well, I paid the money back. That Because in the end, then the choice is, I don't pay them. And then when someone realises, well, then I just pay them back. They need to be on top of these details and they need to make sure that they are paying people correctly. And the only way to make that happen is to create 
penalties for situations where they don't do it right. Otherwise, the only penalty they face is potentially just having to pay back what they should have paid in the first place. Whilst in this matter, the Wage Inspectorate of Victoria is chasing an employer for long service leave that was allegedly not paid to casual workers, not all casual workers are entitled to long service leave. Will Strzok says her organisation is working towards a solution that would see more casuals entitled to long service leave. In certain circumstances they are. It's a little bit technical and it's that's one of the reasons why we'd like to see every Victorian worker be entitled to long service leave and we are pushing for a portability scheme for that to happen. What's this portability scheme? What do you mean by that? Basically your entitlements would be paid into a scheme and then You don't have to see a particular length of service with a particular employer. Once you hit a length of service during your work, then you can draw down what's been paid into that scheme. The Wage Inspectorate of Victoria's case will head to court in August this year. In the meantime, Commissioner Robert Hortle's message to employers is clear. We are out there. We are proactively checking employers' compliance, um, but we're also here to help employers do the right thing, which most employers certainly are trying to do. Robert Hortle from the Wage Inspectorate of Victoria ending that report by the ABC's Oliver Gordon. Right, it's time to catch up on news from beautiful Wanganui now where local democracy reporting journalist Moana Alice uh, comes to us from Awa FM. She's just interviewed a traditional Māori baker whose rewena bread has just been recognised by UNESCO. Now, uh, a little word of warning, if you've, well, if you haven't had breakfast, maybe even if you have had breakfast, this one might get your mouth watering. Well, have you ever had rewena bread? I haven't. I can't, I can't say I have. Well, it's like a it's a, it's a sourdough parawa. It's it's dense, but it's very dense and it's quite sweet. It's a much loved traditional bread among Maori, and to make it, you need a starter bug, which they want to make is passed down from generation to generation. You know, it can be going for you know a hundred years easy. And traditionally, it's baked in a round cast iron camp oven. Last week in Wanganui, we had the news that Rewana baked in Wanganui is about to take its place on the world stage in a new UNESCO project. And this particular Rewana is made by a fellow called George Jackson using his great-grandmother's technique as passed down to her daughter, his grandmother, and is to be included in UNESCO's Global Breads of the Creative Cities project, which is, is being set up by Tucson in Arizona, which is the city of gastronomy, to document and promote bread-making traditions and culture. Have you tried it? I have. As soon as I heard that uh, George was selling bread, this was probably a year ago, mm. um, Rewana, I raced down there with my father and we got a loaf each, but I ate almost the entire loaf in one sitting, so I've never bought another, <laughs> never right. bought another one since. Good on you. I, I probably would too, delicious. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, his favourite way of eating it is toasted with um, loads of butter, of course, and plum jam. And I have to say, I love it that way too. But we, as kids, we used to have it with golden syrup. It's absolutely delicious. But hes it's a 16-hour process for him to make it. He's still got the cast iron camp oven his grandmother used to use, but he sells his parawa in smaller loads because he sees people today live in smaller households and eat less bread, unless you're me and my dad. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can relate. I can relate. Hey, you, you got into it a little bit, but um, can you tell us a little bit more about, about the process, about how it's made? 
Well, I'm, I've never made Riwana. My koro, my grandfather, was the one who made the Riwana, but typically he would start it in the late afternoon or evening, and you've got to, you get your starter bug, you have, you have to you know, keep that starter bug alive, so you've got to feed it constantly with more potato, natural yeast potato culture. And there's a kneading process. You have to leave it to rise. So he used to leave it to rise in this blackened camp oven in front of the old cast iron cooker, you know, aga type cooker, but not as fancy. So it would rise there. And then he did something else to it. And then he had to leave it for a second rising. And then, of course, you bake it. And you're not supposed to eat it while it's still warm, but keeping his mokopuna away from it, <laughs> I, you know, we we would quite often have great big thick chunks of rewana bread that was still warm from the oven and um, just slathered with butter and whatever jam that my nanny had made. It has to be homemade jam, you know, sharp, some kind of sharp jam or golden syrup. That's the way we ate it. Yeah, yeah, worth the wait, worth the wait. Yeah. Let's just change tack slightly. You interviewed the man who might be the next Speaker of the House, so why has he been floated as a as a potential replacement? Like, tell us about him. He's apparently, Trevor Mallard has signalled, the current speaker, has signalled uh, quite some time ago that he was looking to move, you know, move on. And Adrian Rudafi has been uh, the deputy speaker since 2020. So Adrian's the Māori Labour MP for Titai Hauaru, the West. And he could become only the second Māori to take on the role of Speaker of the House. Uh, the Prime Minister said he's, he's going to be nominated in August to replace Trevor Mallard, who's heading to Europe. And the first Māori to hold the role was Sir Peter Tapsell between 1993 and 1996. So Adrian Rudafi says he's been keen for a long time to transition into the Speaker role. He describes it as an important democratic role for the day-to-day functioning of Parliament. He'll also be the first speaker who'll be able to preside in both English and Te Reo Māori. And he says he doesn't underestimate the challenge or the magnitude of the role. He says every speaker has had their own style and he'll, he can only be himself and thinks he probably won't treat it much differently than when he was the chair of his hapu or the chair of his iwi. He says the main role is making rulings based on standing orders, but he says he can't help but interpret those standing orders according to his own values and lived experience. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the best. Right, joining us now from our business team is Nicholas Poynton. Uh, morning, Nicholas. Good morning. How what, are you? Good, 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 good. What are you focusing on? I've got startups here. Hard to get cash. Yeah, well, what we've seen is that the local startup industry has been swimming in cash over the past couple of years. A lot of it is linked to the reduction, the slashing of interest rates uh, in response to the pandemic. You saw big private equity funds sort of would just had so much money sloshing about, we're throwing it at anything. And that was a real boon for our local startup industry. Last year, 
$321 million went to, was uh, sort of lent out by venture capital firms. That was a record, a gain of about $127 million on the year before. But what we're seeing is that money's beginning to dry up, and that really is linked to rising interest rates. Investors are a lot more cautious in what they're putting money into. They want to be pretty, pretty, pretty sure that what they're putting money into actually has some real prospects of generating a return in the future. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's that there is no money out there, but it just means that investors are really got an eye on quality, less appetite for risk, and uh, look. I wonder for startups that were sort of making small gains, I think it's just going to be a much more challenging environment for them to get sort of these injections of capital into their business to be able to scale up at pace. But uh, look, it's just going to put more onus on the founders to really do that work. And when they go to the market and they look to raise money, they've got to have a proposition that's going to lure people in. You know, investors want to be able to look at that business and see, right, that's the path to profit. Mm. I want to put my money into this. So really just a, a follow-up effects of that global story, right? That uh, interest rates are going up. It's going to make it a bit harder for businesses to invest and be able to grow at pace. Yeah, I was going to say, just sticking with that theme really, isn't it? That it, I mean, everybody's battling whether it be in <laughs> yeah. business or whether it be in, in, in life. Generally. Very much so. Yeah. It, it's, it, it is a global f- phenomenon and I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. I know it's it's people don't really have much regard to the challenges that have been seen overseas, but you know, we're all in sort of in this, in this walker together, right? So, and um, it is going to be a challenging period going forward. But at this stage, look, most people are expecting that we're not going to see a recession. Yes, the economy is going to slow down, but it is going to be tough going in the near, in, in the near term. People are going to continue to feel that squeeze on, on their wallets with inflation mm. going up. And look, most of the experts are saying that we haven't actually even reached peak inflation yet, which will be a bit of a worry for some people because it probably signals that the Reserve Bank is likely to raise interest rates further. Uh, they're not in the business of going light on things, they believe in going hard or going home. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, uh, just quickly, tell us about this uh, new carbon market. Right, carbon markets, people probably know the idea, you you... You you plant a forest full of pine. You can sell carbon credits for people yep. who offset emissions in their business. This new carbon market is looking to really focus on uh, native forests because uh, they say that there's in the carbon pricing there's not much differentiation between the two. Uh, final point I'll make is that a carbon forest can, can sequester carbon for about thirty to forty years. Uh, native forests can do that for much longer. They're saying why don't we recognise this in the in the carbon units we're selling? Absolutely. Hey, thanks, uh, Nick. Nicholas Poynton there with our business news. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Uh, and while we're on business, let's go to the markets. Your New Zealand dollar is buying 63.15 US cents, 91.09 Australian cents, 59.57 Euro cents, 51.32 British pence, 4.22 yuan, 85.43 Japanese yen. And uh, if you're planning on travelling to Suriname, one New Zealand dollar is worth around 14 Surinamese dollars. Right, Sport Now, uh, COVID-19 has hit the all-black squad in the lead-up to the first test at Eden Park. Uh, the ABs have shoulder-tapped former former Ireland coach of all people, Joe Smith, to help pe- uh, prepare the team as coach Ian Foster and two of his deputies are struck down with the virus. Joining me now is our rugby reporter, Joe Porter, with the latest. Morena, Joe. Morena. Hey, uh, so tell us about 
well, actually, first of all, any new cases overnight that you've learnt of in amongst the squad? No, I've had a quick trawl through Twitter and the rest of social media as well as touching in with the All Blacks. It doesn't appear so, so it seems as though it's confined at the moment. They lost, of course, another assistant coach in Scott McLeod yesterday. He tested positive on Monday. It's unclear when Ian Foster and assistant coach John Plumtree tested positive, but it's believed all three of those coaches will be uh, missing from Saturday's test at Eden Park, despite the fact that it may well be seven days at their isolation up before the test rolls around. Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, they've been in camp, haven't they? So, yes, possibility of other, well, other coaches. Obviously, we've we, we know people have been added to that list already, but other players. And is it conceivable that we could see a fairly weakened All Black squad on the weekend? Hey, look, I mean, with this pandemic world that we now live in, anything is possible, Nick, absolutely. Um, you, like you say, they were in camp all last week uh, in Northland doing various community engagements as well as trainings. Uh, the players, David Harvey and Jack Goodhue, both midfielders, you, 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 could, you could make it an educated guess that possibly they'd been rooming together uh, as well. And you think about how quickly the virus can spread. We've seen it spread among three coaches already. No doubt they were having meetings all week. Uh, Brad Moore, assistant coach, and Greg Freak, the last coach, is left standing at this point in time. Whether or not they come down with symptoms or end up testing positive remains to be seen. There could be players that are asymptomatic. No doubt they're having, they're doing testing, uh, I think it's once or twice a day at the moment, to make sure who does and who doesn't have it. Um, one thing I guess in the All Blacks' favour at the moment is that most of the players I believe have had COVID. There are very few left in the squad who haven't. Not that that, of course, guarantees you from not being reinfected or catching it again, especially if it's a different variant. However, it does provide some level of protection against reinfection. So I guess that's one thing in their favour. But boy, oh boy, who knows what team will be announced on Thursday to play Ireland in this first test of the year, which is a massive game and what a huge disruption for the All Blacks. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, hopefully we see Roger Tuivasa-Shek either on the bench or in the starters. Hey, um, just briefly, uh, obviously Joe Schmidt's been brought in. No razor? <laughs> I know many people calling for Razor to come in, and, and why wouldn't you? What an amazing coach he's been. Another Super Rugby title. Obviously, a lot of debate over whether he should have been picked over Ian Foster to lead this team. But look, Joe Schmidt's already within the All Blacks setup. He was supposed to start as a selector slash analyst uh, during the rugby championship. So he's been just starting his job a little bit early. And he's also been thrust a little bit more responsibility. But look, um, coming in as a selector and analyst, it was always going to be a stepping stone to him joining that coaching setup more full time. And, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Hey, absolutely. Hey, thanks, Joe. Uh, Joe Porter there with our sports news and COVID and the ABs. Right, the professionals of Morning Report are up after six, and for a quick preview of our flagship news programme, it's Corin Dan. Morning to Corin, what's on the agenda? Uh, good morning, uh, good morning, everybody. Yes, we will uh, focus overseas to begin with, with this uh, this attack on a shopping centre in East Ukraine from Russian missiles. We'll also head to the uh, G7 and find out the latest there in terms of world leaders and how they are responding to the war in Ukraine. Uh, back here, we're seeing this, uh, well, supposedly a wave of American health workers wanting to come here in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. 
Uh, also, we're going to dissect a bit of the sport action as well, the cricket. We're going to have to go there. What on earth went wrong with that tour? 3-0 series loss. Can't put it all down to Brendan McCullum, surely. Mm, yeah. uh, netball and, uh, and rugby too. We've got the Irish test coming up too. We'll talk about the impact of COVID that is, have, of course, having a big impact on the uh, All Blacks build-up, how that might affect things, uh, with our reporter and an Irish reporter too. Hey, still no razor in the coach's box. No, you, that would be a bit awkward, wouldn't it? Inviting him in. Uh, but, you know, I mean, mind you, there does seem to be a lot of coaches, doesn't it? They don't seem yeah. to be short of people. A lot of, of chefs people. in the kitchen. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, well, I'd say uh, of Fozzie has got uh, maybe three or four test matches up his sleeve. If he can win those, he'll be fine. Yeah, let's see, let's see. Hey, uh, thanks, Corin. Uh, morning report up at six. Uh, hey, look, a second COVID-19 booster will be available to anyone aged over 50 today as well as any health, aged care and disability workers over the age of 30. But but is COVID-19, or the flu, back from a two-year pandemic hiatus wreaking havoc and causing our hospitals to be inundated? From Friday, free flu vaccines will be extended to include 800,000 more New Zealanders, including children aged between 3 and 12, people with serious mental health or addiction needs, and all Māori and Pacific people aged 55 to 64. So are there enough vaccines to go around? I put that earlier to Pharmax Director of Operations, Lisa Williams. We do. So what we did at the end of 2021 is we were talking with the supplier and we encouraged them to bring enough vaccine into New Zealand to vaccinate nearly 2 million people. So there's just under 2 million doses of flu vaccine available. And so is the flu worse than COVID-19 this winter or is it really case by case? So the advice we'd got from our clinical experts was that with the borders opening and the fact that the flu hadn't been circulating in New Zealand for a couple of years, the likelihood of an increase in flu for this season was high. And add that to the fact that the health sector is dealing with COVID as well, we really wanted to ensure that as many people could get vaccinated as possible for the flu. So why the increase now? Because, I mean, obviously we've known, well, for some time that flu hasn't been in the community for a couple of years. Why not offer them earlier than now? Yeah, so what we calculate, we, we widened access slightly at the beginning of the flu season to include uh, Māori and Pacific people over the age of 55. And what we thought was that the number of people that were eligible, including all of the people who work in the health sector, need the 2 million doses for that. But the uptake has been a bit slow and we wanted to ensure that if there was going to be any vaccine left over, it wasn't wasted. That's why we're expanding access now. Yeah, obviously we've heard, you know, about some of the pressure on GPs, on hospitals. Do you sort of have a sense of how much of it is attributed to, to flu? I can't give any figures around it, but it is certainly what we're hearing from both primary care and hospitals, that they're seeing a greater influx of people who are experiencing the flu. Mm. Are you concerned about, I guess, you know, to flip it around, the pressure that free vaccines will put on on GPs and, and nurses? Does that sort of, is that something you consider, I suppose? Yes, and it's absolutely feedback that we received when we consulted earlier in the season on our um, widening of access. Also, there's a, there's a balance there, isn't there, that you're doing some work for a preventative measure that would reduce impact, that would potentially be more significant if people were actually being infected with the flu and needing care.
In Auckland, we had uh, the shop bro bust during, obviously, the COVID-19 vaccination rollout. Is it time to maybe look at that sort of thing? Uh, we get a lot of texts about mass vaccination events at schools. Do you think we need to get a little bit creative, perhaps? Yes, if I'm actually having conversations with the Ministry of Health and now Health New Zealand about the ways that we can adjust immunisation delivery programmes to encourage people to participate and to capture as many people um, as possible to make it easy for New Zealanders to access the flu vaccine. So what's in the pipeline? Are there sort of any, any ideas you can give us about what we might see out there? Well, one of the great things that's happened is uh, a change in the enablement for pharmacists to deliver the flu vaccine. So they are now allowed to vaccinate anyone over the age of three. So this expanded access that's happening from Friday, parents will be able to take their children aged three to 12 to the pharmacy to have their vaccine and hopefully that's an easier place for them to access it as well as their general practitioner who will continue offering a service. Yeah, in terms of people, I guess, who, you know, have, have in the past sort of put off getting the, the vaccine because, you know, I guess it's the old attitude, I, I never get the flu. If they do want one this time around and are happy to pay for it, is access still pretty pretty easy? Yeah, um, so we understand that most pharmacists and um, general practitioners have got ample supply in their fridges, People can make an appointment or most pharmacies will take walk-ins. So, yeah, we really encourage people to get out there um, and get their vaccine. Right, we'll have uh, Nicola Willis, the National Party Deputy Leader, on shortly on abortion. But first, a bit of your feedback on that issue. Uh, This person says, The issue is not the individual MP's view on abortion, but the party's policy... Uh, I assume that relates to Simon O'Connor's tweet. Then Labour has a policy which it has implemented making abortions legal in New Zealand. Another bit of feedback. National does not have policy when it comes to the individuals MP, the individual MPs. So if a private member's bill was introduced restricting abortions, national MPs, including Mr Luxon, would be free to vote for it under the guise of a conscience vote and it would be inconceivable that Mr Luxon, as an evangelical Christian, would not vote to restrict abortions. But then on the other side of the coin, one person says uh, if, ends, if a person doesn't happen to support an abortion, for example, why should he or she be vilified? Another bit, of, another bit of feedback. I've always supposed NZ to be a country where people are free to have their personal views and beliefs. However, I'm not so sure now. Uh, the next person says a lot of Kiwis are really reluctant now to express their views on different issues because they are utterly slammed if they do it. And finally, how can NZ possibly call itself a free and fair society if this is happening? Well, staying with that topic, the US Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and roll back women's reproductive rights 50 of 50 years has resonated loudly in New Zealand. As you'll no doubt be aware, it's now up to individual states to decide whether to treat Uh, women who have an abortion as criminals, with some states having already imposed such laws. Well, back home, it's put the spotlight back on National Party leader Christopher Luxon's views on abortion, as well as some of his colleagues in the party. Mr Mr. Luxon's deputy, Nicola Willis, who is pro-choice, joins me now. Uh, Good morning, Ms Willis. 
Good morning. What was your reaction, first of all? Let's start with your colleague, Simon O'Connor. What was your reaction to his post on social media uh, in the last couple of days? Well, personally, I thought that his post uh, was a little insensitive and distasteful uh, in that I think we all recognise that abortion is a sensitive issue. Uh, People have strongly held views on both sides of the debate. In my case, as you've acknowledged, I'm pro-choice, and I'm sure that I joined many women around the world who felt that the Roe versus Wade decision we all learnt of over the weekend was upsetting, uh, and I felt concerned for millions of women across America, and I felt concerned for women's rights Mm. globally. So to hear um, Simon O'Connor just, I don't think, expressed his view in a way that was sensitive or considerate, and so I'm pleased that he uh, has deleted that post. Why, Why until now haven't you come out and said anything on this, though? Because I'm just looking through your Twitter page. There's no mention of anything that you've just uh, said then. There's no condemnation of Simon O'Connor's post. Why not say something? I have spoken about it. I was on News Talk ZB Radio yesterday, uh, and I think that our leader, Christopher Luxon, has done a very good job of expressing, uh, one, uh, that he wanted that post removed, uh, and two, that we do have a caucus position, which is that we are all free to have our own personal views on abortion and to express uh, our uh, views on abortion. But we are expected to do that in a way that's sensitive. Absolutely. Uh, And we also have a party caucus position, which is that we are not going to relitigate or revisit New Zealand's abortion. Absolutely. But you're you're pro-choice, right? So how do you explain or how do you, I guess, justify being in a party with people whose views you find repugnant, quite frankly? Well, on this issue, there are a range of different views, and I respect that people hold those views, but I expect them to hold them respectfully of the fact that I have a different view. And this is actually something that has a pretty long tradition in Parliament that on issues of abortion, we're not split just according to party lines, but according to personal beliefs. So you saw, for example, in the debate about abortion in the last Parliament, uh, that there were members of both Labour and National who both opposed and supported uh, reforms. And I spoke in Parliament about my views, and actually I expressed at that time really clearly that I have people who are people I really respect and trust uh, and see in good light who don't agree with me on abortion. And so, I think in a so, free society when, we should when be it comes able to, to tolerate that. Sorry, Ms Willis, when it comes to the National Party, though, are there still is there still room for views like this? Like look, Mr O'Connor's? Look, I think in the National Party... We are a big tent party and there is room for people uh, who have different views from mine on abortion. What is really important to me is that we also are clear as a party that this is not on our reform agenda. Okay, well, if we're well, elected let, into government, this is not an area where we are going to seek to change the law. Let me put it to you this way. Is there room for people to express themselves in the way Mr O'Connor has chosen to in this case? Well, I, th- I think the way you've put that question is um, is really smart because there is room for people to express themselves, and they must be able to do that. But in, 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 this, in, in this in this in this way, in this exactly, way, exactly, and but not in the way 
that Mr O'Connor did at the weekend. I think Simon uh, has withdrawn that post and that was the right thing to do because it caused distress uh, for a number of people. Uh, and so it was the right thing for him to do, to delete that post. But but the damage is done, isn't it? Because the, the, uh, we've seen the, uh, the outcry over this. So how are you going to stop uh, your MPs, your colleagues from doing things that, well, yourself, your leader, clearly think are missteps. I mean, are you worried this sort of behaviour is going to continue to damage your party? Well, I think in um, politics, uh, people will make mistakes from time to time. It's life and we're is human this a, Is this a mistake, though? Would you call this a mistake? Well, I think making that post was a mistake. I think it was a bad decision. I'm glad that it has been deleted. And I think we can all, in our caucus, reflect on it and learn from it. And what um, you can expect to see from us is that we will all be united behind a party position, which is that in the next uh, government, we have committed that we will not be revisiting or relitigating New Zealand's abortion laws. You see, the thing is, uh, you know, a, a mistake sort of suggests it's an accident. I mean, w- would you would you make a social media post on an issue as serious this as this in such a flippant sort of a nature? Well, I think that's um, exactly why it was asked to be deleted because it was insensitive, and I would hope that I wouldn't do that, but I also accept that all of us from time to time uh, have failings of judgment, uh, and I think that was the case uh, in the situation, and I think the right response was to delete it. And as I say, I really share the distress of those who didn't think it was sensitively handled at the weekend. On the flip side of this, you've got former National MPs coming out this morning basically saying, uh, directed at Chris Luxon, that you can't gag free speech. So how are you going to, I guess, balance free speech with, with statements that, well, clearly yourself, your leader, think are damaging? You're in a bit of a bind here, aren't you? Uh, I think it's quite possible for people to hold a personal view on abortion, to express that view and have freedom of expression about it, but to do it sensitively, acknowledging that people have directly opposite views in some cases, and to also do it in a way that they're not implying it's the National Party's position. It is their personal position. And our party position uh, is that regardless of people's personal views, we will not be revisiting or relitigating uh, abortion laws. And, and look, I just note, it's not. this is not an issue where you've heard from everyone in the um, Parliament. There are many people who haven't spoken about it yet. And there are a range of views across Parliament. Thanks, Nicola. That is uh, National Party Deputy Leader Nicola Willis there. Hey, look, uh, that's it from us today. Uh, we've, uh, we've, well, we've gone through your feedback already, so we'll leave that. Um, but if there is anything else you'd like to talk to us about the show, uh, you can get in touch with us. Tweet us at FirstUpRNZ, uh, Facebook us FirstUp, or email FirstUp at RNZ.co.nz. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. Uh, I'm going to be back to reporting tomorrow. Nathan will be back in the hot seat. See you then.